Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Monday, October 30th, and we thought we'd take a break from investing-centric things and talk a little bit about personal finance. We're pulling out five big money stats that really highlight the state of personal finance in the United States. Now, the aggressive title for this episode is definitely Five Money Stats That Will Knock Your Socks Off. I don't know if we could quite deliver on that, but it's certainly important as we head toward the end of the year to really talk about where we are with our money and what we're thinking about for 2018. I'm your host, Michael Douglas, and I'm joined by Matt Frankel. Hey, Matt, welcome back to the show. Hey, good to be here again. All right, fantastic. So, before we get started, I think an important caveat applies here. We're going to talk a little bit about these different stats and what they mean for Americans. But here's the thing. Everything we're talking about here is, in a lot of ways, window dressing for the one fundamental rule of personal finance, which is spend less than you make, build an emergency fund, and invest the rest. And I found a great article on Fool.com that describes five great ways to save more money. So if that's something you're really ready to commit to do, either in the back two months of 2017 or in 2018, shoot us an email at industryfocus@fool.com. It's by one of our best writers, and it's got a lot of really thoughtful ways to think about budgeting and saving better, which is something that, frankly, I think all of us can do. So again, shoot us an email at industryfocus@fool.com. All right, with that out of the way, Matt, let's start by talking about emergency savings. Sure. Um, the statistic that really jumps out to me here is that almost six out of ten Americans cannot cover a five hundred dollar unexpected expense without either, you know, borrowing the money, using a credit card, or selling something. And experts generally suggest you have about six months of expenses in the bank, and that's a big, big difference there. Yeah, it's interesting to me because when I think about $500 expenses, that's really not that much, right? We're talking a really bad trip to the dentist. We're talking your car's AC blows out. Actually, when when mine did it cost over $2,000, but let's not talk about that. It was a tough summer. <laughs> um, but when you when you when you think about it really, that's not really that much money and it really highlights how much Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. Yeah, a lot of people just aren't very good at saving money. And of those that are, a lot of people are, and I'm guilty of this, are not very good at putting it in readily accessible places. I, for example, tend to max out my retirement accounts, you know, to the detriment of putting some money in a place where I can readily get to it. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I, that's, this is one area I could definitely improve on. Maybe that's my 2018 New Year's resolution. <laughs> well, that sounds like a very good article to write up in the, <laughs> sometime in the relatively near future. Yeah, I think for me, it, it's frustrating almost because when I think about investing, I, I want every dollar I have to be working for me in some way, right? So I don't want to accept that you know, quarter of a percentage point in my savings account or something like that. What I really want to do is go invest in the stock market and hopefully get you know seven or eight percent returns. But that safety cushion basically enables you to take sort of when you think about it more risk in other areas of your finances because you have that sort of solid foundation ready to protect you. Right. That could make it. Because uh, in my case, if I got a you know a flat tire, I generally put it on a credit card, and I'm, if I'm paying 15% interest, the that more than offsets the seven or eight percent returns I'm hoping to get from my investments. So this we'll get the credit cards in a minute, but this is something you know people need to think about when when it comes to putting some readily accessible money on the side. Absolutely, actually that's the perfect segue. So why don't we hop on over to credit card debt and. Mm-hmm. 
it, it's really incredible to me how much the average American household's credit card debt is. Right. The average American household has about $5,700 in credit card debt. But that doesn't really tell the whole story because only about one in three households carry credit card debt. So among those households that do, the total is a little over $16,000. Um, the average credit card interest rate is about 15% right now. So this that implies that the average pers- the average household that carries credit card debt is paying nearly $2,500 a year just in interest for the privilege of owing that money. Yeah, that's a pretty brutal set of statistics there. And I think it really highlights this question we all have to ask ourselves of our money. Is our money enriching us or is it enriching somebody else? When when you have credit card debt, your money is enriching somebody else. And I think there are some misunderstandings about credit. So a lot of people, I've heard this myth pretty often where people say, well, but I have to carry a balance on my credit card to benefit my credit score. That is not true. (laughs) You do not need to do that. You should never have to. Basically, in an ideal world, you are never in a spot where you are carrying a balance and having to pay interest on it. You want to pay your credit cards off on time every time. No, the, yeah, there is some truth to the to the sense that in the sense that you need to use your credit cards in order to maximize your credit score or use your credit. Sure. Um, because you know, that's the whole definition of having a credit score. But the the concept that you need to carry a balance from month to month is it's a, a, a very popular misconception that you, you don't need a balance in order to maximize your credit score. I think one of our writers um Sean Williams actually has a perfect credit score and carries no credit card debt whatsoever. Yeah, so it is certainly doable without, again, carrying a balance. And in fact, carrying a balance does not do anything to help you. The other thing that really this highlights to me is, you know, it really stood out to me when you talked about that $2,500 per year that people are paying in interest on their credit cards. I mean, think about how much money that is. Think about if that $2,500 were going toward emergency savings, right? So there's a lot of... I think, need for people to think about how to really pare down that credit card debt. For me, I, I think a lot of people kind of end up in this spot where, because they didn't have a lot of emergency savings, they then end up, ending up, end up owing credit card debt on you know, a car repair or something like that. And so, suddenly, they're kind of in this spot where they're just basically trying to sort of fight to keep their heads above water. One of the things that really jumps out to me is this idea that, you know, a lot of folks are stuck paying the minimum balance on their credit cards, that minimum payment. And the thing is, if you commit to paying the same amount each month, at least, so your minimum balance will decrease over time because the amount that you owe decreases over time as you gradually pay it off. But if you keep to that same amount, you can save a lot on interest by just paying that, let's just say, for example, $360 every month instead of as it drops down to $350 and $340, sort of paying that minimum That'll enable you to pay off that debt significantly faster while still maintaining the same budget that you had. Another good point, um, right now, uh, competition among credit card companies has really never been higher. And there are a lot of great, I mean, the best I've ever seen, uh, 0% balance transfer offers. Some companies are even willing to waive the the balance transfer fee, which is historically unprecedented almost. Um, You could find... 0% 0% interest up to 21 months as of right now, um, 15%, 15 months with no no fee whatsoever. So this could be a good way to make sure all of the money you're paying is going toward going paying down your debt rather than making the credit card company's money. Yes, 
0% balance transfers are an incredibly attractive option if you have a pretty good credit score and you are sitting on some credit card debt. Just like you said, Matt, it's a great way to make sure that you are paying off that debt as quickly as possible with as little money as possible so that you're not enriching that credit card company. But the important thing is to commit to doing that. So if you do that 0% balance transfer, don't just sit and wait for 21 months and spend money elsewhere. You really want to make sure that you are paying that off quickly. Let's talk about stock investing a little bit. Sure. Um, it might surprise some people to learn that only just over half of U.S. adults own stock, 52%. Um, this may not sound too surprising at first when you think, um, you know, how many people do you know that actually buy individual stocks? But this includes things like 401ks, just owning a stock through a mutual fund, um, college savings plans, things like that. So almost half of all Americans don't even own stocks indirectly. And this is sharply down from before the Great Recession hit about eight or nine years ago. Yeah, the two things that really jump out to me from that, first off, I think there is this fear of investing in, in individual companies because it's hard to pick winners and losers. And, and it's a lot of effort. I mean, let's face it, Matt, how, how long in a month do you spend thinking about individual investments? Um, just for my own, I would say, you know, three or four hours a week, easily. Yeah, I'm, I'm right around 15 or so hours a month myself. So that's a lot of time. And that's time that you could spend doing, frankly, other things. And if you're not willing to put in that time, then individual stock investing, or, well, beating the market through individual stock investing is going to be incredibly difficult. But the thing is, we have these things, index funds uh, and exchange-traded funds, or ETFs, that essentially give you that guaranteed exposure to the stock market for really usually pretty minimal fees. And that's really a great way to get that automatic diversification if you're not going to kind of spend the amount of time necessary to really figure out one stock over another. And people need to uh, approach stock investing from a long-term perspective. Sure, it's, I mean, in any given year, it's completely possible, if not even considered usual, for the market to go down 20 to 30% in a year. Um, it's happened, I think, 10 times in the past 50 years. But the if you think of it from a long-term perspective, over any long period of time, the stock market has returned you know, eight, between 8 and 10%, depending on the time period you're looking at, um, very consistently. So people who are investing for the long term, especially for retirement, like in a 401k, really need to think of it from that perspective. Agreed. The other thing that I think a lot of people... I think a lot of people fear risk and fear the possibility of losing their hard-earned money, and I, I get that. If you're listening to this podcast, you are probably not one of those people, <laughs> because we are an investing podcast. But the fact of the matter is that people, I think, often fear this idea of having their hard-earned money and watching it disappear. Um, but the fact is, as you pointed out, Matt, long-term, the stock market is a much better compounder of wealth than most other uh, forms of saving. It's certainly much better than cash. Definitely. And I, I mean, as somebody who owned stocks before the the financial crisis, I had a few bank stocks in my portfolio too. So I completely get that it can be scary. But having said that, this this implies that some people with 401ks are putting their money in, in cash assets, which or bonds. ironically are the ones that, which, right, or bonds. But 
cash assets, ironically, are the ones that lose value over time, despite what people think about it. Just, I mean, inflation kind of erodes your purchasing power. So putting your 401k in cash is arguably the worst thing you can do over the long run. Yes, it's it's sort of the risk of losing some money in the short term versus the near certainty of not having enough money over the long term. Speaking of which, it seems like a good time for us to talk about retirement savings. Yes, definitely. Um, for retirement, um, the st- statistic that stands out to me the most is the average retirement savings in America, which is $95,776 as of the latest data. Um, and in the older group, the pre-retirees, which is 56 to 61 years old, it's 163,577, which sounds like a lot at first, but really is not enough. Um, the average social security benefit I think right now is around $1,400. You might have the actual number in front of you. Yeah, it's right. But it's really, that's about right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, which is not likely to be enough when you think about how much money you spend. So the average American needs a whole lot more than they have. And this is what you hear about the retirement crisis in America is what they're referring to. Yeah. And to be precise, it's $1,413 and eight cents as of the 12 month period ending June, 2017. So it's really not that much money. When you think about your average saving, sorry, your average expenses on a monthly basis, it's most likely, unless you live in an incredibly low cost area, you're spending a lot more than $1,400 a month. And so I would encourage everyone listening right now, do a quick exercise. What are your current monthly expenses? Just write them down on a piece of paper or just in fact, just do a total average guess. So maybe it's $5,000 a month. Maybe it's $6,000 a month. Take that, subtract $1,400 because that's more or less the average Social Security amount. And for the remainder, multiply it by 25. That is a reasonable guess for how much money you're going to need to have saved for retirement if you're going to maintain your current spending levels. Now, maybe you spend less in retirement. Maybe you spend more because of healthcare. There's a, a lot of reasons to, a lot of different ways and reasons to argue, kind of either for it going, your spending going up or for it going down. But if you just assume the current, that's what that number looks like. It's probably a big number. It's probably pretty daunting. But fortunately, there are a lot of ways to get there. Yeah, it's actually probably closer to a million for the average American than. 163,000, which is what people are saving before retirement. Mm-hmm. Um, based on that, the 4% rule of retirement, which is not perfect by any means, but it's a good guideline based on that rule. A million dollars translates into what? Um, 40,000 a year. 40,000. Yeah, and I, I'm the math guy. <laughs> <laughs> it translates into about $40,000 a year of sustainable income that won't run out. Um, and that's from a million dollars. Uh, 163,000 does not translate to nearly what most people consider a living income. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing that I think is is worth considering, though, is that you know there are a lot of ways to save for retirement and a lot of tax benefits to doing so. When you think about your 401k, if you're in a traditional 401k, you get the tax break up front. If you're in a Roth. 401k, then that money can grow tax-free and you can take it out tax-free for forever. Uh, When you think about IRAs, there are benefits to those as well, again, both either traditional or Roth. And frankly, when you have a 401k, usually your employer actually gives you a little bit of money to 
as a thank you for saving for retirement. It's called the employer match, and that's something that everybody should maximize if they have that opportunity. I mean, it's not just for the long-term effect. You get a nice, like you said, you get a nice tax break now or or later. But for a traditional IRA, for example, if the average person maxes out their traditional IRA, which is $5,500 right now, that's about $1,000 in tax savings for the person in the average tax bracket. Um, and that's on top of, you know, the the compounding power over the long term and ending up with enough money to save for retirement. You actually get a nice little little bonus along the way. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty substantial bonus. And it's interesting because these are bonuses that a lot of people forego, even when they're saving in other ways. So really think about the potential tax benefits of a retirement account. If you're interested in learning more about traditional versus Roth and sort of how those work, uh, I've got an article on that. Just shoot me an email, industryfocusatfool.com. I'll be happy to send it to you just so you can sort of understand what the benefits and drawbacks of each are and then apply those to your personal circumstances and make the decision that makes the most sense for you. With that in mind, let's turn to homeownership. Now, before we get into this, I, I just want to kind of highlight, we did this a little bit in order. So, when we're thinking about what you need to do, generally speaking, of course we can't speak for everyone, but generally speaking, in personal finance, the very first thing you need to do is establish an emergency savings fund. The next thing is to pare down credit card debt. After that, personally, I think stock investing is important. And after that, thinking about retirement savings. And then finally, there's an opportunity to really start thinking about homeownership. Now, I'm a little bit biased because my wife and I are about to close on our first house. Well, hopefully, knock on wood. <laughs> and we've certainly been Congra- doing... Congratulations. Thank you. Well, <laughs> let's talk to me in two weeks. <laughs> we'll see if congratulations are still in order to that. But here's hoping. And we've certainly done the other four things first. And I tend to think that that's the right order to do things. But of course, it may be different for different people. Everyone follows different paths to get to where they are today. But keep that in mind. So, with that all said, let's talk about homeownership a little bit. Sure. Um, so, I've been through the homeownership process three times myself, and I can tell you that it's a good idea to get the other four things we talked about in order first before you jump into homeownership. Having said that, um, it's worth pointing out the median net worth of a homeowner is 90 times higher than a rent- the average renter, about $200,000 versus $2,200 r- roughly. Um, but I'm going to put a big asterisk for that statistic because this is kind of a biased group. The average homeowner is older than the average renter. The average homeowner is further into their career than the average renter. And when you talk about that net worth, we already mentioned Americans are pretty bad at saving. And that's true for homeowners just like it is for renters. But the average homeowner, most of that net worth is in home equity, not in you know liquid assets like stocks and bonds. 401ks. Yeah, it's interesting because in a lot of ways, this median net worth, again, 90 times that of a renter, really highlights the difficulty a lot of Americans have saving money. Because home equity, you can think of it as sort of forced savings. Now, that is an oversimplification on so many levels because home equity is not liquid. You can't get to it easily. Also, it's real estate prices change dramatically. So, all those caveats aside, it is a form of wealth that accrues sort of automatically with every mortgage payment. And that is something that folks are able to do when they really struggle to do a lot of other saving. 
I think one thing that we can really learn from that, though, is this idea of what I would consider kind of invisible savings. One of the benefits of the 401k is that you don't see the money beforehand. It just, before, before your paycheck comes to you, some portion of it gets siphoned off and disappears into this account where you don't see it. And that's really, really crucial because it's money that you don't think about having, and so it's money you can't spend. I mean, you can, but you have to take a lot of effort to spend it. I've actually tried to do this with a lot of my different savings, automating things, setting aside savings for each paycheck, setting aside an IRA contribution in each paycheck, just to basically put the amount of money that I see and can therefore sort of spend mentally, make that amount smaller and smaller so that you know anything that we do spend, you know, we splurge or go out to eat or whatever, that we're not compromising on those retirement savings. Right, like you said, it's not a it's not a perfect example of of forced savings. Just because, I mean, we'll ask anybody who bought a home in the early two thousands how much of forced savings it was. Right. But to that ex- but it is a it is a great wealth builder over time. At some point, if you're paying down a mortgage, you're going to own your house outright. The actual amount of home equity you have will go up and down significantly over time. Um, but in general, it's a really good way to. It, just, it automates the whole process, just like you said with a 401k. Um, I have a certain amount go into my daughter's college account every paycheck. It's something like that. Just automating is kind of the key to you know personal finance success in general, in my opinion. Absolutely. And again, talking about personal finance success, we've got that article on the five tips for saving more. Just shoot us an email, industryfocusedfull.com, and do yourself a favor. Commit to doing that today. Well, that's it for this week's financial show. Questions or comments, you can always reach us at industryfocus@fool.com. And hey, by the way, while you're online, shoot us a review, either on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us get Industry Focus out in front of more foolish listeners. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Matt Frankel, I'm Michael Douglas. Thanks for listening, and Fool on!